What's your relationship with alcohol like? Have you ever wondered what living a sober or sober curious life could do to increase your creativity and spirituality? Alcohol is a really tricky topic. It's one that's woven deep into our culture, especially if you're here in America. It's one that is woven into a lot of different stories around what it means to be a creative or an artist. And it's one that's really hard to unwind within ourselves. And with the holidays coming up, it's a good time for all of us to look at our relationship with alcohol and just ask, huh, is there anything underneath it? Today's guest discusses her journey towards sobriety and how it transformed her relationship with her creativity, spirituality, and herself. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. This show sits at the intersection of creativity, mental health, self-development, and spirituality, and it is meant to give you tools to love, trust, and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Today's guest is Zoe Pollock. She's an artist, industrial designer, entrepreneurial leader, and speaker. Zoe's work has been featured in places like Architectural Digest, Interior Design, and Martha Stewart Living. Her paintings are also in the private collections of the Government of Canada, Colby Smulders, and Club Monaco. I wanted to have Zoe on because I was super interested in her take on the connection between sobriety and creativity, and also because she has a lot of interesting insights on self-development, healing, and spirituality, and how they all intersect with creativity. From today's chat, you'll learn why sobriety can lead you to live a more creative life and what it could open up in your life methods to tend to your mental health, how to listen to your deepest wisdom from your gut, heart, and brain, how to find a devotion around journaling, the power of breathwork, and much more. Now here she is, Zoe Pollock. Zoe, thank you so much for being on Unleash Your Inner Creative. I'm truly honored to have you here and to be talking about so many heartfelt, spiritual, creative topics. It just feels very generative and I'm grateful for you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Me too. So the thing I'm really curious about, and it's interesting because you said you're most interested in talking about it right now, is sobriety and its connection to creativity and also letting in the divine. I'm curious if you could bring me into your decision to become sober. What led up to that realization? And what was the moment when you finally said, okay, I'm going for this? Yeah, thanks for that question. And it is my favorite topic because getting sober is the number one thing that's transformed my life. I feel like I have a second lease on life. And so I feel like I've died and been born again. And every day I wake up with fresh eyes and I just cannot get over this miracle of what it is and what it means. So that's really exciting. And I guess what happens is when you first get sober, a lot of things have led up to that moment. And a lot of people planted a lot of seeds along the way. It was a number of events that led to the decision. We have a lot of people whose stories I've heard who it wasn't wrapping their car around a pole. It wasn't losing their kids. It wasn't losing their job. It was some shift in the heart that happened that moment where they decided I need to change my life. And this moment for me remains a mystery. 
it's not that I don't want to answer the question, but I do believe that many things led up to me just getting sick and tired of being sick and tired and not wanting to carry my life uphill anymore. I was starting to feel like every day was a slog and every day was a burden. And there was something inside of me that was whispering, like, this is the one thing that you need to let go of in order to transcend to the next level. How did you hear that voice whispering inside of you underneath the weight of alcohol? Because I think so many of us have a little voice like that, that gets covered up by this other force in our lives, whether it's alcohol or something different. How did you still hear that voice even with alcohol present? Well, I think you're correct in that we all have the capacity to hear that voice and respond to it and listen. And I think that uh, it's not only the force of alcohol that can be overpowering or loud. It's There's so many forces at play every single day. Capitalism, busyness, you know, the demands of life and poor food or poor habits or all of these things piling on to cloud our vision. And they keep us from being able to be still and be quiet and respond. And as we deepen our spiritual practices and get quieter and quieter and spend more time trusting that voice, then we are able to trust it in those bigger decisions, those bigger life decisions. So there's sometimes a voice that says, don't cross the street right now. And you listen to it and then a car whizzes by. There's another voice that that might say, don't marry that person. And you just don't listen. So it's in practicing in the smaller things, I think that eventually the noise got so loud that it was time for me to let it go. I had known for a long time and it was just a matter of responding and surrendering, I guess. And why do you think there is this misconception that the only way you really need to become sober or like should become sober is if you're in these extreme situations, like your car wrapped around a pole or, you know, you've lost your job or your relationship is about to end. Why is that such a common thought process? And what is the truth of what an addiction to alcohol can actually look like? And I think the, the most exciting part was the beginning where you asked, why do we believe that we need to hit some sort of a rock bottom in order to quit? Why does this myth exist? And I think there's a few reasons. One is we have a perception of who a real alcoholic is from TV and movies. So an older man under the bridge with a bottle that's covered in a paper bag, you know, and so long as you're not missing work or abandoning your children or, you know, missing the kids soccer practice or barfing, you know, at such and such, you wake up and think, I think I have a problem. And then you sort of run through what we think it is to have to be an alcoholic. And it's a very narrow range. And I love the work of Holly Whitaker, whom you've had on the show or interviewed before, because I believe that her and Laura McCohen and some other people early on introduced new language, contemporary language, whereby we began to understand that there's a spectrum of alcohol use and that we find ourselves somewhere along that spectrum of use. The number one rule of Holly Whitaker's manifesto for hip sobriety was we do not need to hit rock bottom in order to quit drinking. And when I read that, it granted me permission to think, oh, thank God. I can just say I have a problem and put up my hand and I don't need to fall on my face and knock all of my teeth out, you know? And as mentioned, it's like the slightest nuance. I think that granting permission through language, what some of those trailblazers have done outside of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous 
has been absolutely life-giving to so many people because it's given us this contemporary language where we're able to step into it and say, oh, maybe that's me. And that little tiny voice in our heart that we were talking about, not just the intuition of the gut, but the heart, the heart that's like, oh my God, that breaks my heart that it's me, but also that's an identity that I want to wear, not as a martyr or to carry around as a ball and chain, but an identity that I want to step into so that I can have liberation on the other side. Yeah. I love what you just said, because I feel like what stands between so many people and actually going towards sobriety is shame. Did you grapple with that at all in making this choice? Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. It's a really uh, heavy, big topic, shame. It's fascinating that something would be so shameful that's openly sold at a store with fluorescent lights on for $9.99. It might be shameful to to have an affair in the dark, this hidden thing that's not not accepted in our society, or it would seem sort of normal to, to be ashamed of doing a certain harder drug because it's illegal and it's illicit. But how strange to feel shame in a culture that like literally pours this down your throat from a very young age and sells it back to you as something that can be medicine to the ails of life. That's the definition of insanity. I give that context because I want everybody to have a lot of compassion on themselves. I think with shame, there's a lot of self-talk. I know for myself, I was like, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I drinking in private? Why am I the most wasted? Why am I, you know, the party's over, but I got a bottle of wine at home. So I'm the self-talk can be really, really self-deprecating. And well, I absolutely need to take personal responsibility, which I do love talking about as well, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of freedom on the other side of that and not blaming. I do think we are steeped in this culture of alcohol as a means to fun and freedom and joy and excitement and, and artistic, you know, capacities and creativity. How much is that sold to us as creatives? The recognition of that as untrue and as, as mythology and as actual lies is a really important piece for people to start to understand to crack open into their own sense of like what's working for them and what's not working for them truly. If someone is in that position right now where they're steeped in shame, what would be your advice for them on starting to go towards self-compassion? Because I feel like it's interesting, like everything you said just resonated so much. Just the word alcoholic has so much weight to it that I think people are afraid to consider they may have a problem even if they do. How would you advise somebody who is feeling just like so much shame and fear even around admitting this? How can they start to have compassion for themselves? In most cases, if someone has a trusted friend, I think the best thing to do when I've been asked this question before is just the thing I needed to do was to tell somebody who was going to help me. I just had to put up my hand and be like, I have a problem. So everyone on the outside in the world thinks that I'm successful and that I'm doing really well. And there's a few select people who know that this might be a problem and suspect it. And I think the second we, we tell one person, it sort of like starts to crack our heart open and it's also functional. Right. And I'm saying this all, like it has to be a safe person because a lot of people are around a lot of people who drink 
And so it's like, you tell your buddy, you're like, I think I have a drinking problem. He's like, you don't have a drinking problem. Like Sam has a drinking problem, you know? And so it's like, we're a part of the soup that we're in, you know? So I think other sober people, if there's anyone sober in your life, like your uncle, you know, Lewis. I have an uncle Lou. You're very, very intuitive. It's a very bizarre name to have selected. (laughs) But we can go to Uncle Lou if Uncle Lou's sober and be like, hey, like I've been struggling and I just, and that's all you need to say. And I think the right person, if they themselves have been through it, they're going to lead you to the right resources. But I mean, there's so many good things out there right now. And what I'm stoked about is that it feels like sobriety is having its time in the sun. Like it's having a moment where I have two teenagers and a lot of teens aren't even considering drinking right now. They're into maybe occasional psychedelics and a tiny bit of marijuana or or nothing at all. They're just getting more and more sober. Wow. They're so healthy. Good for them. (laughs) They have the internet for better or for worse. Yeah. Well, at least in this way, it's for better. You know, there's something you said that is so true. And it's a question I wrote down, which is that so many people who are creatives or, you know, consider themselves artists have this deeply held mythology that alcohol is synonymous with creativity, that if I drink, I will become more creative. And that's part of the creative lifestyle, you know, sitting and drinking a whiskey and writing away. How do you rewrite that if that's the story in the playbook running through your head? Yeah, let's start there. And then I want to ask you about what creative things you found since becoming sober. You know, of course, if any of us were really honest with ourselves, we're like, did we write our best poetry when we were three glasses of wine in? And the answer is, of course not. The problem with that is that when we're using, our minds are clouded. So well, we can answer that question as currently sober women chatting with each other, um, not under the influence, I think it's harder to feel and see when you're inside of it. So again, remembering that there's this TV and movies have been telling us that for a long, long, long time. So to counter that, it's gonna take you know a lot of presence and awareness that that first of all exists. And secondly, I would say removing the substance for 30 days. If you're not addicted, then let's propose you remove it for 30 days. And then I dare you to get extremely creative for 30 days and see how much work you can produce while you're exercising, drinking tons of water, doing breath work. like. I dare you to to actually witness how much work you're able to produce when you're sober, because I think that's evidence of what you're capable of. And I just, I think it's important to note that, you know, I've been cold plunging for three years. We do breath work. There's other ways to get high in life, right? Breath work is wild. Whoa. (laughs) I did breath work for the first time this year. Oh my gosh. I haven't even talked about that on this show, but like I got visits from my ancestors. Love, love itself came to visit and tell me about how I needed to heal my relationship with it. Whoa. I've never had a high like that before. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. And you, and the reason you're tripping the most, I think at the end is like, you're like, I was just breathing. Like, this is crazy. I was using oxygen. So yes, holotropic breathing, a couple other kinds, you know, guided breath work, et cetera, with music and so forth. Uh, you know, the spinning dervishes, you know, that, that there's like many ways, many, many, many cultures that have been using different modalities for getting high. We do not need this. And the substance, secondly, like if you're going to use a substance to get high, 
why ethanol? Like why gasoline? Like why a depressant? How is that a good time? Like when I reflect as a sober woman now, and I say that with all compassion, I was the first one to have two glasses of wine and be like, this is going to make me funner at the party. Um, This is going to like make me more social or more alive. And now I'm like, I stay up way later. I remember every conversation. I'm more witty and fast. I'm more on top of it with, if I'm networking with my clients, like my brain is firing in a whole other way that it wasn't when I was using. And so it's like, it's mind blowing. But I think as mentioned before, I think it's really hard to say that and believe that unless you're like, kind of have to pull the substance off for 30 days or 90 days to actually see that manifest. Yeah. And I'm curious in your life, I mean, you just spoke to some of the ways, but what sort of creative portal has being sober opened up for you? Like, how would you describe your creativity pre-sobriety and post-sobriety? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the answer to that is that I'm more present. So my work is more present. I'm more productive. So I produce more work. I'm better with my finances. So I know how to buy more canvases. It's not that it's unromantic or all pragmatic, but it's not like I drank some magic potion after getting sober and something completely changed in me. My work stayed pretty similar. A lot of people would say that my work lately has gotten my color combinations are a bit more daring or the work is more splashy. But in truth, I think that has to do more with being a clear vessel. Like I would say, you know, Rick Rubin would talk about the body as a vessel and us just putting up the antenna my antenna is way more present and aware. And so I'm capable of receiving way more information and channeling it um, more efficiently. Mm. I know you've had a really close relationship with God since you were 12. How has your ability to hear God shifted since this sobriety? Yeah, thanks for the question. I always like to remind people that if they're allergic to the word God, Um, You can insert the word creative energy and love universe. I use God, lowercase g. I have always had a strong sense of connection to my higher power. And I spend more time with them. I spend more time in conversation. What will you have me do? How can I be of service? How can I make amends? I'm constantly in conversation. And I think one of the biggest things that I've had to do since getting sober is try to figure out how to not try to be in control all the time. A lot of people who use alcohol are extremely controlling. Why? There's many answers to that. My experience has been that maybe I wasn't uh, tended to as much as I needed to be when I was younger. A lot of people who drink a lot or use a lot come from traumatic pasts or had traumatic events happen to them for whatever reason, or maybe I was born this way and maybe it's 50-50 nature nurture. I am more of an anxious person. I want to go, 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 do, 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 don't feel safe. And so when I medicated with this calming, warm substance, I was actually at the beginning, you know, they say it works until it doesn't. It kind of worked for me. It was like, I took my first drink and I was like, oh, thank God. I can finally kind of calm this nervous system that's just like always firing. And this brain that's quite bright, 
a lot of people, when we get together, who've had drinking problems in the past, they're extremely bright and extremely creative. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that when we remove the medicine, you really see their disease, right? And so when you get a group of us together, it's a real party because it's like, when you take away alcohol, it's like, I'm still here. In fact, I'm living now with my skin turned inside out because I have to experience all of life truly and completely exactly as it is, which is new to me. Yeah. And something I hear a lot of people who are sober talk about is how the most sensitive and deeply feeling people often become addicts because it's just too much pain to not be. How are you dealing with being turned inside out? I move through life now using other modalities for exposing myself to difficult situations, such as exercising, cold plunging, breath work. What these things do is they show me that I have the capacity to be resilient. So what I'm doing is intentionally building my resiliency. You know, when I first got sober, there's a light wind. I'm like, oh my God, I want to drink. I don't know what to do. We cannot deal with life. Yes, you can, but you have to practice. And I'm raising two teenagers. Teenagers will find whatever is closest to them, available to them, whether it's marijuana, video games, TikTok, what's closest to me and what will soothe my pain, like a little soother or a blankie. This is very natural and normal. And what we want to do is just hand them different tools. I'm not doing a perfect or great job at that most days. I'm learning. And in this culture, it's extremely hard because again, the forces are like so powerful, but I have two highly sensitive, empathetic kids and I'm watching them grow up this way. And it is tough. Yeah. How have you been vulnerable with your kids while still letting them know like mom's here and She's going to protect you, but this is what I'm going through. Yeah, exactly. I, I think of the metaphor of being a flight attendant. Most of my life is spent being a flight attendant. I just hand out snacks and tell everybody that everything's going to probably turn out. And if you think about that metaphor, it's true. We're just kind of, we're going through some bumps in the air. Like maybe put on your seatbelt. I have some suggestions for like how you might want to get through this and stay alive. And you can choose to use them or not, you know, but when it comes to my own suffering, like I went through a really hard last couple of years and I found that sweet spot between sometimes I would need to cry and I would end up crying in front of them. And then I would say to them, I'm okay. And I have my own friends and I feel a lot of things right now. And I feel really sad and I'm an adult and I'm I'm okay, you know, and I'm, they're not my friend. I don't go to them for counsel. I try to be very cognizant of the child parent dynamic because we've heard so many stories now at our age of friends who said, my mom used to try to be my friend or my mom got me to help her solve her problems. Or my dad told me everything about their divorce or my dad told me everything about our finances or whatever when I was way too young. That said though, in this contemporary time, like kids know way more my kids know kind of what's going on at my business or my kids know my staff or my kids like we're so integrated in a way that I don't think we were previously with our parents. Like your dad went to some job that was like far away in some office building and you didn't really know what that meant. Right. Whereas now, like sometimes I'll bring my kids on like a work trip or something. So our lives are so integrated by choice, which I think is highly beneficial. My kids know that I'm human. I mean, if I died tomorrow, 
I would want my kids to know that my life was like a living example of how to try to get through. They know that I've been down or that I've been challenged, but they would know not because of what I said to them, but because of how I lived, that we're kind to people, we're always honest, you know, we're ethical in business. And they would say, my mom got up three or four times a week for some crazy reason and exercised and jumped in that freezing cold ocean right in front of our eyes through the hardest years of her life. And I hope that they think that that's admirable. Mm, So beautiful. I know you mentioned this has been a particularly hard couple of years. How do you hold on to hope through darkness? Uh, You've got to hang out with really fun, funny, dark, strange, creative people. You know, I have a list of names in my phone and it literally says people to call if you're down. I have to keep things so simple. I have such a complex life and a complex brain, a complex heart and a complex sort of situation going on with my teens and my life and everything. So I need to keep things really, really simple. And I have a a list in my phone, who to call that's fun. (laughs) Like, you know, when I'm hosting a dinner party, like I invite the fun people first. It's like, levity will get us through you know and I can I have a tendency to be a little bit more serious analytical sometimes that's a sincerity with which I approach life but sometimes it can get to be too much and so I need people in my life who remind me that we're here for a good time not a long time to laugh even though it's you know terrible sometimes and when things get really really hopeless what I've had to learn to do this last couple years that's different from years previous was call someone and just fall or say, I don't even know what my question is. Like I used to feel like I had to prepare a script that was like, hi, I'm calling because I'm really sad. And I think like, Thursday would be a good day to, yeah. I'm like, if you could buy me ice cream on Thursday and if you could come by and tuck me in on this day. And like, I was almost providing solutions for people. And this year I've had to come completely broken open and just really let people carry me through like a life, life raft. That's been incredibly vulnerable and really, really challenging. That's such a beautiful share because I really think that's true. Like sometimes when we're so sad or so frustrated or in a long-term dark place, we don't even really know what the problem is. Like if we did, we probably would have found a solution already. And I do that. You just made me see myself in you. Like I don't want to burden my friends a lot of times with the uncertainty of the darkness I'm feeling. And so because I don't have a thesis statement for my sadness, I don't reach out. You just really changed my life. (laughs) Yeah, when they say, what's wrong? And you say, I don't know. I'm just broken. I'm just lost or or, or you just don't even have any words. But think about how, like, why would we think we have the responsibility to wrap perfect language around such a unique hodgepodge of confluence of like crazy emotions and histories and past and traumas and conscious and subconscious and you know we're complex beings so why would we have to wrap perfect language around that it's in our darkest times it's a lot of pressure (laughs) way too much pressure I'll be pondering it Perhaps through the power of journaling. I hear you're a huge, a huge journaler. Okay, I want to talk with you about this because 
I did a hundred day challenge at the beginning of the year to do the morning pages every single day. And I did it. But about a month in, it started feeling like a job. And I've never been able to frame journaling as a devotion versus a discipline. And those two words hold very different energy for me. I've never been able to be devoted to it. Mm. How have you found a way to have a devotion around journaling? Number one, and then I want to get into other journaling thoughts too. Devotion is the reverence and awe that I pay to what journaling gives back to me. I'm not its personal trainer. I don't have to show up for a certain thing. I'm not its daddy. (laughs) I don't feel an obligation to journaling. It shows me its devotion. When I stand at the altar and the altar holds something up to me and I'm broken and I'm empty and I'm human and I'm flawed and I'm just, I need what's at the altar. What is left on the pages is an offering to me. So I stand at its feet, if that makes sense. Yeah. That is a very romantic, beautiful way to say that I journal out of complete neuroses. And the fact that I'm like anxious and love seven cups of coffee in the morning and I use to-do lists and I scribble on things like my journaling is not like a set thing and I've never done a set amount of days. So I hold it loosely, I guess. So when you journal, I think you just answered this, but are you just saying whatever is on your mind? Like, how do you start? First of all, I mean, we call it journaling, but I never think of it like that. Like if somebody's like, I'm really into kayaking, I kayak every morning. Like that's a very like, I put on all my kayaking clothes and I like shop at the kayaking store. You know, I don't really think of myself like that. It's like I get up and I bring myself to the table the same way you bring yourself to the, to a piece of toast that's on a plate. Mm. You know, I just bring myself to the empty page and it's just something I do in the morning, like brushing my teeth. So I bring myself to it with not a lot of expectation, but daily ritual, like brushing my teeth. You know, I'm just like, okay, here I am. I have one trick that I feel works for me that I think I feel like might be unique to other people. I'm not really sure. But I feel like it's important to write down the question that you're thinking in your head. So for example, if you're like, I hate my mom, I hate, I'm so sad about everything that's happening with my mom. And you go to journal and you write, I don't know, I hate my mom or I, I don't know, whatever it is. I stop before answering the question, so to speak. And I, I ask the question and I write down the question. So every morning I write down what matters today. So I write down one thing and um, I might think, oh, it's so important that I get this client or I go to work and I like look this certain way or whatever. This podcast is really important today. And I'll end up writing down like, oh my God, I really got to make sure that I um, pick my kid up at five o'clock because that doctor's appointment is really, 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 really important. So I I really put in my heart and my mind and on the page, like what actually matters today? Because sometimes that surprises me. It's like, we think all this other stuff matters, but it's like, Oh, that today I promised myself I was going to go for a jog and I bailed on myself the last seven days. So actually, that's actually what matters the most to me. I do that. And but I always write down the question, too. So not just answering it, but writing down, like, why am I afraid? And even seeing the question like, oh, you've got so much fear inside of you. Why so much anxiety? I'm able to look at the question. And so the question speaks back to me. So I think I have a really conversational relationship with journaling where it sounds super dorky, but it's me and my journal in conversation and it's speaking back to me from the page. Yeah. I love that because 
I never look at it as something that gives back to me. I look at it as something I have to do. And that feels blah because it does give a lot back to me. Every time I do it, for me, I feel like it opens up a portal to the heavens and all of this information just starts coming through. And also, I just feel like I'm more myself. Like there's less barriers between who I am and the world. Like I'm just able to be a little bit more free with being myself when I'm journaling. If I could think of it as a means to have more intel from God and have more authenticity, I think I'd feel differently about it than I have to write three pages in the morning. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's why I've never had like a rigorous practice in that way. So Yeah. yeah, but I'm that way with everything. Like I, I just try to exercise, you know, between three to five, usually five times a week, but like aim for five, get three, aim for three, get five. I don't really, it's just like, if my pants fit, I kind of just keep, you know, moving on in life. I, I'm not, I'm not a very like strict, rigorous person that way. So I think that really takes off a lot of the pressure. How do you find that grace for yourself? That's a good question. I was actually asked that last night. I was, my friend was saying she was stressing about hosting a Christmas party and I was like, where like why like what would what would happen there that we would all like no one gives a shit like everybody wants to come you're like she's the coolest girl and not legitimizing her feelings but what they were getting at was like you host all the time and you never see you're always such a relaxed host just as one example I put a lot of internal pressure on myself sometimes but I'm pretty easygoing with with myself in terms of I don't have that sort of negative self-talk oh that's beautiful Yeah, I feel very fortunate. And I don't, sometimes when people do describe their internal dialogue or the landscape of that, like if you shared with me some of the things you tell yourself, I'd be in, I don't talk to myself like that very often, if ever, but maybe about certain topics, sometimes it'll creep up. But my job now in sobriety is to like, see something come up and then witness it and then sort of like, let it pass through like a wave, you know, that's not mine to carry. Wow. Yeah, something I've been doing lately, I mean, I'm definitely not to like the wave level, but I've been asking that voice questions, which seems to be helpful. So when I have a voice in my head that I call the drill sergeant, and that's a part of me that always is just like cracking the whip, trying to get me to do more work. And I asked it one time, what do you want from me? And it said, I don't want you to give up. And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. Like, thank you. Thank you so much for believing in me and like making sure that I keep going. This particular method of encouragement isn't helpful. (laughs) If I could modify the way that you are drill sergeanting. Yes. A little more Zen, a little more encouragement would be great. Well, I had to recently do that with my partner. We did it by just, I didn't, I didn't have to, but I was like, oh, you want to be told, like you want coach Carter to come over top of you at jujitsu and like, tell you like how to do things. And I'm like, that's never helpful to me. I don't, I don't have that voice inside and I certainly don't need it outside. And so I think what you just brought up is, is worth mentioning like um, internal family systems. It sort of sounds like, I don't know if you've ever done that type of therapy, but it's been really helpful to people who are really close to me lately. So, you know, I didn't know it was that my therapist did like recommend that I ask it a question, but then I've been hearing all these people talk about it. So yeah, IFS, we should all check IFS. it out. IFS, Good. <laughs> oh, I wanted to ask you this. You, you brought up this like very 
interesting thing. A few different times you talked about the wisdom of your brain, your heart, and your gut. How would you describe the wisdom of each of those parts for yourself? So this is new information. We've, we maybe have heard this uh, recently that we have three brains, the gut, the heart, and the brain brain. We always think we're functioning here, right? And I am not integrated a lot of the time. Ask anyone who knows me. And I think I'm at my worst when I'm functioning just from the neck up. This is a dangerous place to live most of the time. The brain makes a great co-pilot and just like for sharp decisions and stuff every once in a while. But if we if we measured how much we're living up here and functioning out of here and how much we really probably need to or should be like, you should turn left to go to this, you know, grocery store. That's a good place for your brain to be the pilot, you know. But other than that, we we need a whole lot more of this, you know, the gut and the heart. So first of all, learning where to find those places, you know, and I never used to talk like this. I mean, I've always been a spiritual person, but you brought it up first. So it's like talking to that heart being like, oh my gosh, that aches. And then instead of saying, well, yeah, it hurts because he left and this hurts because, you know, and adding sort of pragmatic information from up here to the heart, it um, really staying with the heart and asking it again, well, why, why does that hurt? Oh, that's hurt for a long time. Well, that's interesting. And just being in conversation with your heart and letting it speak a little bit more loudly, because if in fact we have three, then we need to give those other two more airtime. And in order to give them airtime, we have to first get to know them. They're just like characters that are at a dinner party and one character has been dominating the conversation our whole lives. And we need to get to know those other two characters, the gut and the heart. Our friends. Our friends, Mr. Gut. <laughs> I, I mean, we talked a little bit about intuition at the beginning. and uh, Like we feel love in our heart. We feel our like gut instinct is often in our stomach. We feel nervous in our stomach about like going down a dark alley. We might choose to listen to our gut. Our gut is telling us not to go there. These are all examples of little ways in which our body is always talking to us. And I literally think we're just needing to be better listeners. And we live in a culture that loves us to only listen to this crazy mind that can get us in real trouble. Do you ever have the heart and the gut talk to each other? Is that a piece? I haven't really thought about that before. I spend the majority of my conscious time around this topic, really trying to train my mind and cultivate my mind and quiet my mind and tell it to play second fiddle, you know, and quiet down so that I can listen to the other two. Yeah. It's interesting because when you were talking about it, I saw them all sitting at a little like round table, kind of holding a press conference with each other, yes. all bringing up their different points. And then your higher self or some greater wisdom took them all into account and then made the decision. Yeah. I think that's the best place to come from. Another way to say that would be the people that I admire have a really strong sense of their gut, their heart and a capacity to train and, you know, not be dominated by their mind. Another way to say that is the most unhealthy people I know are just like brain, 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 you know, I can't shut off my brain. And it's like, okay, I definitely come from that place, but I've had to find other practices other than drinking in order to 
yeah, shut this thing off because it's just go, go, go. Otherwise it's, it can be real, real trouble. Oh, real trouble. I always say I was a floating head for the first 31 years of my life, just floating, Mm -hmm. totally detached from the neck down. And I'm definitely not there yet, but ever since I've started bringing that energy down and learning some of the wisdom of my body, life has gotten a lot better. 100%. Let's circle back to this divinity piece because I believe, as I know you believe, that spirituality and creativity are intrinsically linked. What is that link in your life? We're here in 3D form in this one body, which is a vessel. Then we sort of go on our spiritual path. We start to hear something like, well, you're a soul having a human experience. And I know whether you heard that when you were 13 or 31, you kind of go, oh, isn't that interesting? Okay, what is that? You kind of try it on like a costume, like, well, what that? What would that feel like? What would that be like if, if I flip that on its head? And I'm not just this body, like a head on a skateboard, just like going. And I was like, a spiritual being in uh, occupying this temporary experience in this space, you know, and then you start to hear things on your spiritual walk. That's like, we're all consciousness. So you're having your experience looking out from your eyes. I have these two eyes by which I sort of see things and I start to perceive stuff. Whoa. Okay. Well, if that's true, then also the plants and animals, you know, is maybe you have a really precious animal and you start to think, Whoa, trippy, like that animal is having its own, sense of consciousness too and whoa what if we're a shared consciousness and then you start to learn about outer space and your nerdy friend tells you about outer space and you're like it's how big like what that's insane and the nearest star is I don't know four point something light years away and what is a light year and then you just start to think holy cow this thing is so much bigger than me and perhaps you do mushrooms in the forest or or you stay on a sober route and you do some breath work a long way of saying wow, there is an infinity happening outside of me and inside of me. And once I start to even just recognizing that it's like mind blowing, you know? Yeah. It's a trippy place to kind of step into because it's infinite, infinite possibilities. And you're no longer just kind of like this meat body that's going (laughs) to end at 87 and a half. (laughs) And how does that channel into your art? I see that coming through the way you paint. How does that happen? I think it connects to that same question. How did I grow a human inside me? How is space infinity? Like, I have no idea why my lungs stay inflated while I'm sleeping. Like, I think approaching all of life as a mystery and not segregating creativity as its like own sort of category, that becomes so mystical like I I wonder if a person who spent their life chopping wood like literally in front of them wondering where every tree came from and wondering like how much oxygen was needed to make these trees like there's an infinity amount of wonder that you can apply to the world and when we're at our best we're curious and when we're at our absolute worst we're closed off isolated and um, shut down from that wonder and that awe and that awe, you know, Mary Oliver says that awe and being amazed and telling about it is the beginning of devotion. And so being in awe as a starting point, and then the telling about it, mine happens to be a visual storytelling, a career and a lifetime of using a visual language and developing a visual language to tell people about the internal landscape and the shared human experience. 
wow, what a vessel to be in for a while. Wait, can you just tell me, I saw your Mother Mary painting and just, I love Mother Mary so deeply. I was raised Catholic. She's one of my favorite parts of Catholicism that have come with me. And tell me about how you were inspired to paint Mother Mary. I'm not kidding you. It's the most beautiful painting I've ever seen of her. Thanks for saying that. That's really generous. I also am in love with Mother Mary. For those of you who don't know, um, there's this beautiful sculpture in Rome called La Pietà, which is the pity, which is the mother holding the Christ child in her arms. And in it, we see um, the Mother Mary, the sun is sort of melting, yet he's made out of marble. It's truly remarkable. What you see in that is a mother's love for her child. I was raised super liberal, left-wing, you know, kumbaya kind of church. I'm very fortunate that I was raised in a room full of left-wing feminists who called themselves Christian, who wanted to devote their lives to the poor. So that's sort of a, some context for where I came from. But I, I also was always obsessed with Mother Mary and the visual of her. There's, you know, in many of them, she's standing on a snake which I love. That's so badass. My true devotion actually, and the influence for that particular painting that you're referring to came from my time spent living in Mexico because the Virgin of Guadalupe is like the most, a beautiful, amazing, colorful, like her robe is blue and covered in the stars. If I, if I remember correctly. And yeah, so I just, I'm, I'm obsessed as well. I love the feminine goddess sort of the integration of that into the the Christian church, which has been so completely lost and obliterated, if not, you know, demolished. hundred percent. And it's wild because just, I pulled it up as you were talking about it and I wrote in my journal, like I think at the beginning of the year, I want a picture of mother Mary having fun. There are no pictures of her having fun. And I think she deserves that. I mean, she delivered Christ to the world. Come on. The woman deserves to have some fun. And I feel that this painting you've made, she does have joy. Like mm -hmm. I see joy in this painting and I've never seen one with joy. So thank you for delivering that to us. That probably comes a little bit from like I got to see places of devotion, you know, the places devoted to her in Mexico. There is sort of like, like a lot of the Catholic imagery is wrought with this heaviness and this, you know, sadness that she's carrying or this, um, the weight carrying sort of the weight of the world, it feels like. And I mean, she's in, she's in often in grief or mourning or whatever it is, but um, you're right. It, that particular painting has quite a bit of levity to it, which I think is unique. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Everyone, you got to go check it out. So there were so many directions we could have gone in. I mean, I had a million more questions for you, but I do want to end with your Oracle deck because I know you have that out. How did you get the creative hit to make those? And who are they for? Like who should be buying your Oracle deck and could use it? as a spiritual and creative tool. Yeah. So we just created an Oracle deck. I say we, as a team, it's all my artwork and my words, but my team did such an incredible job um, on layout design and everything from my copywriter who helped transform these words into gold. It was definitely a, a group effort. I created an Oracle deck because I wanted to find a way to combine writing my words with artwork. And 
I was always opposed to planned obsolescence and never participated in like making a, a huge run of prints and selling them, for example, for very inexpensive. So I couldn't find a way until I thought of this deck three years ago to combine my words and artwork in a way that was authentic, sincere, high-end, sort of beautiful. And I also just wanted to make something to be of service. So I want people to have own this Oracle deck, pull a card in the morning, and each word comes with a piece of writing that I wrote, but also a journal prompt so that they can feel supported in their daily journal practice. So if they are struggling with their journaling practice, they they can feel like they can go to the deck and use it every morning or evening whenever they want to enhance that process. And I feel like pulling a card helps you to be a bit more self-reflective, hopefully. So reflecting on, oh, how am I not being trusting or trustworthy? Or what does trust mean to me, for example? And kind of carrying that in your pocket throughout the day. And not only having you feel some sense of accountability, um, but mostly a sense of curiosity around what each card might bring to you um, at any given moment and how that might uh, stir up new questions inside of you. Ooh, well, I can't wait to be stirred. I think I need it. <laughs> um, Zoe, you are awesome. Thank you for your vulnerability and your amazing insight. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much. It truly was a joy. Thanks for listening and thanks to my guest, Zoe Pollock. For more info on Zoe, follow her at Zoe Pollock and visit her website, zoepollock.com to find her artwork and get your hands on a set of her Oracle deck. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit and associate produce this episode. Follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thank you to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also, tag Zoe at Zoe Pollock so she can share as well. I have two wishes for you this week. My number one wish is that you listen to your gut, heart, and brain. Find the connection between them all and open up to your true authenticity. My second wish for you is that you just take a look at your relationship with alcohol. Just get curious around it and start to wonder. Something I do every year is dry January. I find it really helps. And last year, it really helped me realize I had been drinking way too much throughout the pandemic and I needed to cut back. And I didn't like the space that alcohol had taken up in my life. And so maybe that could be good for you. Maybe just asking the questions around it could be nice. But I think it's something we need to examine more. And if it's taking up more space than you want it to, considering reshaping your habits around it. All right. Big stuff. I love you. I believe in you. And I'll talk with you next week.